Section 67 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 4 Subre. The aspect of the man who wrought these things had become terrifying. Gilliatt, in this multiple toil, expended all his forces simultaneously. It was with difficulty that he renewed them. Through privations on the one hand and weariness on the other, he had grown thin. His hair and beard had grown long. He had but one shirt left which was not in rags. He was barefooted, the wind having carried away one of his shoes, and the sea the other. Splinters from the rudimentary and very dangerous anvil which he used had made little wounds on his hands and arms, the spatterings of toil. These wounds, scratches rather than wounds, were superficial, but irritated by the sharp air and the salt water. He was hungry, thirsty, and cold. His can of fresh water was empty. His rye flour had been used or eaten. All that was left for him was a little biscuit. He broke it with his teeth, as he now lacked water wherewith to soak it. Little by little, day by day, his strength decreased. This redoubtable rock was sapping his life. Drinking was a problem. Eating was a problem. Sleeping was a problem. He ate when he succeeded in catching a sea-louse or a crab. He drank when he saw a sea-bird alight on a point of rock. He climbed thither and found a hollow with a little fresh water. He drank after the bird, sometimes with the bird, for the mews and the gulls had become accustomed to him and did not fly away at his approach. Gilead even at his hours of greatest hunger did them no harm. It will be remembered that he had a superstition with regard to birds. The birds, on their side, were not afraid of him, now that his hair was shaggy and wild and his beard long. This change of visage reassured them. They no longer thought him a man, but believed him to be a beast. The birds and Gilead were now good friends. These poor creatures aided each other. As long as Gilead had had rye, he had crumbled up for them the cakes which he made. Now in their turn they pointed out to him the spots where there was water. He ate his shellfish raw shellfish quench thirst to a certain extent. He cooked the crabs. Having no pot, he roasted them between two stones heated in the fire, after the manner of the savage inhabitants of the Faroe Islands. In the meantime, the equinoctial weather had appeared to some extent. Rain had come, but a hostile rain. No sheets, no downpours, but long, fine, sharp, icy, penetrating needles which pierced through Gilead's garments to the very skin, and his skin to the very bone. This rain furnished but little water to drink, and wet him none the less. Chary of assistance, lavish of misery, such was this rain unworthy of heaven. Gilead had it upon him for more than a week, day and night. This rain was an evil action from on high. At night, in his hole in the rock, he slept only from the utter exhaustion of labor. The huge sea-gnats came and stung him, and he awoke covered with pustules. He had fever which sustained him, 
fever is a help which destroys he instinctively chewed lichens or sucked the leaves of wild cochlearia the meager shoots of the dry crevices of the reef however he paid but little heed to his sufferings he had not the time to turn his attention from his work because of them the engine of the durande was in good condition that sufficed for him every moment as the necessities of his work required he threw himself into the water then came out again he entered the water and emerged from it as a man passes from one chamber in his dwelling to another his garments were never dry they were soaked with the incessant rain and with sea-water which never dries gilliatt lived in a constant state of moisture to live in wet clothing is a habit which can be acquired poor groups of irish old men mothers young girls almost naked children who pass the winter in the open air beneath the pouring rain and the snow huddled close together in the corners of houses in the streets of london live and die in this condition to be soaked without and to be thirsty gilead endured that strange torture at times he sucked the sleeves of his pea-jacket the fire which he made scarcely warmed him fire in the open air is only half a comfort it burns on one side and freezes on the other gilead was in a perspiration and yet shivering everything around gilead offered resistance in a sort of horrible silence he was conscious of this enmity things have a gloomy non possumus their inertia is a lugubrious warning an immense ill-will surrounded gilead there were burns and shiverings the fire bit him the water chilled him thirst gave him fever the wind rent his clothes hunger ruined his stomach he suffered the weight of an exhausting combination of circumstances the obstacle silent vast with the apparent irresponsibility of fate but full of indescribable and savage unanimity converged from all points upon gilliatt gilliatt felt it bearing down inexorably upon him there was no means of escape it was almost like a living prison gilliatt was conscious of a somber rejection and of a hatred exerting an effort to subdue him it depended only upon himself to flee but since he remained he had to deal with this impenetrable hostility not being able to put him outside it put him under it the unknown it clasped him close it compressed him it took his place from him it deprived him of breath he was bruised by the invisible every day the mysterious vice was tightened one turn gilliatt's situation amid these disturbing surroundings resembled an ambiguous duel in which one party is the victim of treachery the coalition of obscure forces environed him he was conscious of the existence of a resolution to get rid of him it is thus that the glacier expels the wandering block of stone almost without having the appearance of touching him this lateral coalition had reduced him to rags to bleeding driven him at bay and so to speak crippled him before the battle he worked on none the less untiringly but in proportion as the work was done the workman was undone 
one would have said that his wild nature fearing the soul had adopted the expedient of wearing out the man gilliatt persisted and waited the abyss had begun by exhausting him what would the abyss do next the double douvre that dragon made of granite and lying in ambush in the open sea had admitted gilliatt it had allowed him to enter and to do what he wished this reception resembled the hospitality of yawning jaws the desert extent space where there are so many refusals for man the mute inclemency of phenomena pursuing their courses the great general implacable and passive law the ebb and flow the reef the black pleiades each point of which is a star with whirlwinds the center of an irradiation of currents an unknown plot of the indifference of things against the temerity of a being winter the clouds the besieging sea enveloped gilliatt beset him closed in upon him in a measure and separated him from the living like a dungeon cell rising round a man everything against him nothing for him he was isolated abandoned weakened undermined forgotten gilead had his empty storeroom his broken or weakened tools hunger and thirst by day cold by night wounds and tatters rags on the superating spots holes in his clothes and in his flesh torn hands bleeding feet emaciated limbs a livid countenance and a flame in his eyes a superb flame is the visible will the eye of man is so made that one perceives his virtue in it our eyes reveal the quantity of man there is in us we assert ourselves by the light which lies under our eyelids small consciences blink their eyes great ones dart lightnings if nothing glows beneath the lids it is because nothing in the brain thinks nothing in the heart loves he who loves wills and he who wills lightens and breaks forth in brilliancy resolution lends fire to the eye an admirable fire which is composed of the combustion of timid thoughts the obstinate are the sublime he who is merely brave acts from impulse he who is merely valiant has but a temperament he who is only courageous has only a virtue the man obstinate in the true sense has greatness nearly the whole secret of great hearts lies in this word perseverando perseverance is to encourage what the wheel is to the lever it is the perpetual renewing of the fulcrum whatever the goal may be in earth or in heaven the whole secret lies in proceeding to that goal in the first case one is columbus in the second case one is jesus the cross is madness hence its glory not to allow one's conscience to discuss nor one's will to be disarmed it is thus that one obtains suffering and triumph in the order of moral facts to fall does not preclude soaring ascension springs from the fall the mediocre allow themselves to be dissuaded by a specious obstacle 
the strong do not. To perish is there perhaps, to conquer is there certainty. You may give Stephen all sorts of good reasons for not allowing himself to be stoned. The disdain of objections raised by reason brings forth that sublime victory which is called martyrdom. All Gilead's efforts seemed chained to the impossible. Success was feeble or slow, and he had to spend much to obtain a little. That is what made him magnanimous, that is what rendered him pathetic. The misery of his solitary work lay in the fact that, in order to erect four beams above a stranded vessel, in order to cut out and isolate in that vessel the part that could be saved, in order to adjust to that wreck within a wreck, four sets of tackle with their cables, so many preparations, so many labors, so much groping, so many nights on the hard rock, so many days in pain had been necessary. Fatality in the cause, necessity in the effect. This wretchedness Gilead had more than accepted. He had chosen it. Fearing a competitor, because a competitor might prove a rival, he had sought no assistance. The overwhelming enterprise, risk, danger, multiplied by itself. The possible engulfment of the rescuer by what he was rescuing, famine, fever, destitution, distress. He had taken all these upon himself alone. He had been thus egotistic. He was beneath the sort of frightful pneumatic chamber. His vitality was leaving him little by little. He hardly perceived it. Exhaustion of strength does not exhaust the will. Faith is only a secondary power to will is the first. The proverbial mountains which faith moves are nothing beside that which the will accomplishes. All the ground which Gilead lost in vigor he made up in tenacity. The reducing of the physical man under the repressing action of this savage nature ended in the growth of the moral man. Gilead was not conscious of fatigue, or, to speak more correctly, he would not yield to it. The refusal of the soul to succumb to the weaknesses of the body is an immense force. Gilead saw the steps by which his work progressed, and saw nothing else. He was wretched without knowing it. His goal, which he had almost attained, affected him with hallucinations. He endured all these sufferings without any other thought occurring to him than this. Forward! His work had mounted to his brain. Will intoxicates. One can become intoxicated with one's own soul. This intoxication is called heroism. Gilead was a sort of Job of the ocean, but a Job struggling, a Job combating and facing his scourges, a conquering Job, and, if such words are not too grand for a poor sailor fisherman of crabs and lobsters, a Promethean Job. End of chapter 4. Sabre.